0: Your dog is always waiting when you come back to the house The cat will rub along your leg and shed upon your blouse But we hug them and we pet them They're a gift from up above They fill our hearts with laughter And they show us how to love
1: So you're thinking you've stumbled into a meeting of the ASPCA Or maybe PETA no, you've just stumbled into ReSound. Welcome to ReSound, a weekly showcase of audio work from around the world, curated by the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxey. Tonight, we bring you four pieces. Remedial theory, proving that naivete can get you everywhere, even The Hague. Silence. A couple explains how they got together even though they've never been on speaking terms. And how does that make you feel? A view of the couch through the eyes of a 16-year-old. And chicken diaries. I knew Betty and Veronica were a whole other species, but this is ridiculous. Oh, and as to the song you heard a minute ago at the top of the show, all I can say is if you keep listening, you'll get to meet Zeus, Dover, Booty, and Thomas. Aquinas, that is. So come, take a break, take a ride, take a listen. So what happens when you mix a little chutzpah with a little gall, a war criminal, and a microphone? you get Remedial Theory, a story produced for PRI's The Next Big Thing out of WNYC in New York by Benjamin Walker. Remedial Theory is so self-explanatory that it really needs no introduction. But I will say this, it's half essay, half journey, and I especially like the way in which Benjamin Walker lets you in on what he's doing and thinking every step of the way. Here is Remedial Theory.
2: Check, check. Okay, we're rolling. Good day to you, this is Benjamin Walker, I'm in the Netherlands, I've just got off the train at Central Station here in The Hague, it's a quiet day. I took the train from Amsterdam to The Hague because, well, I wanted to see Slobodan Milosevic who is currently standing trial for crimes against humanity don't know what the Hague people like to do on Friday afternoons, but... The trial was getting a lot of press, and pretty much every article said the same thing. How Slobodon was belligerent, defiant, constantly berating the magistrates, making scenes. But there was one article in particular that really caught my attention. It mentioned that the former dictator was doing a lot of reading in his cell books by john updike ernest hemingway for some reason i couldn't get this out of my head in fact the image of this petulant war criminal lounging around in his cell reading books kind of kind of drove me nuts tv tv i could understand but reading
0: excuse me i'm looking for the yugoslav tribunal what building is that Keep going. Yes, to the right and uh,
3: at the
4: traffic lights to the
0: left.
2: Thank you so much. Have a good day. You know those posters you always see in the library? They say things like reading makes you human or read, discover humanity. Well, I've always taken those at face value. That's why I'm fascinated with Slobodan Milosevic. Here we have the butcher of the Balkans on trial, forced to confront his crimes and his victims but yet all he can muster up is contempt and scorn, no remorse, no empathy, but yet every night he goes back to his cell and puts up his boots and reads books. So I decided that obviously he um isn't reading the right books. So I went to The Hague and brought him some better ones. I'm looking at myself in the window right now. I have all these wires and cables coming out of my pockets, and I'm holding a microphone in one hand and a bag of books in the other. Maybe I should take the sunglasses off. Excuse me! One of the books that I brought him was Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said by the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick. At the end of the book, Felix Buckman, who's the policeman of the title, has just learned that his wife's died of a drug overdose. He's flying around in his quibble car, weeping. Then he stops at this robot gas station where there's a middle-aged black man in a topcoat waiting for his car to be filled as well. Buckman gets out of his quibble and, on a little scrap of paper, draws a picture of a heart pierced by an arrow and then they have this conversation. Here, let me read you a bit. The black man said slowly and firmly, but also a little loudly. These places, these coin-operated robot gas stations are downers late at night. Sometime later on, we can talk more where it's friendly. That can tell you're feeling down at the mouth, you know, depressed. That's why you handed me that note, which I'm afraid I didn't flash on at the time, but do now, and I've had that sort of inspiration, or rather call it impulse, from time to time during my life. I'm 47 now. I understand. You want to not be by yourself late at night, especially when it's unseasonably chilly like it is right now, but it's okay. I can dig it. Don't worry about it one damn bit. You must drop over. You can meet my wife and our kids, three and all. I have this scenario in my head. Slobodan is in court, only now his attitude is different. He's no longer cross-examining the witnesses. He's no longer dismissing anyone's testimony or scoffing at anyone's credentials. He just sits there in his chair with his head bowed, every now and then doodling something in his notebook. Then, a little Albanian girl tells the story of how the Serbian army killed her entire family. He doesn't even look her in the eye, but when she finishes her account of how her mother and sister were both raped and then shot up with assault rifles, he lunges out of his seat. The guards tackle him as he runs towards the blue chair where the little girl is seated. They pry a piece of paper from his outstretched hand and pass it to the judge. It's a drawing of a heart pierced by an arrow.
0: Excuse me, sir. Is this the um, Yugoslav Tribunal building? Is there a main visitor entrance? Yes, if you go that way, then turn left, and then you'll come to the other side of this building. Okay. That's the main entrance. And this is where the Milosevic trial is being held? This is in here, yes. Uh, OK, thank you so much.
2: I also brought Slobodan Milosevic a collection of short stories called The Fierce and Beautiful World by the Russian writer Andrei Platonov. One of the stories is called Homecoming, It's about a soldier, Ivanov, who returns home after four years. His wife confesses to him that in her loneliness she had once reached out to another man, and Ivanov throws a tantrum at this, and in the morning he sneaks away to board an outgoing train. As the train pulls out of the station, he realizes that his two children are running alongside the tracks, chasing after him. Here, let me read you this part. Ivanov closed his eyes, not wanting to see and feel the hurt of the falling, exhausted children, and he realized how hot his chest had grown, just as if the heart languishing inside it after beating uselessly all his life had suddenly broken out into a kind of freedom, filling his whole being with warmth and with trembling. He was now aware of all that he had known before, but much more precisely and more realistically, Before, he had felt life through a barrier of pride and self-interest, and now, suddenly, he had touched its naked heart. All of Platonov's stories take place in an alternative reality of sorts, a reality where there is still pain and suffering and unhappiness, but at the same time, always the possibility of redemption. And in Platonov's reality, this redemption is never something cosmic or theological, but rather human and always within our reach. I like to imagine Slobodan exposed to this reality late at night in his cell. I especially like to imagine the look on his face when he puts the book down, and yet the reality doesn't go away.
0: Hello, sir. Uh, recording devices aren't allowed in the building? No, sir. No, sir. Um, yeah, I work for radio in the United States. Where's that? I'd love to.
3: You
0: can't take Take notes. Um, can I leave them with you?
3: You will lock them in
0: a the locker? Yes. Okay.
2: The courtroom was separated from the press room by a wall of glass, but I was able to sit pretty much directly in front of Milosevic, and he definitely noticed me because I, well, I waved at him. And, of course, a guard immediately came over and informed me that waving was absolutely forbidden, so I refrained from making any further gestures, but I wanted to, you know, point at me, point at the books, and point at him. All right, here's the deal. I'm in the main lobby now. They're playing on the monitors, what I just witnessed in the courtroom. Um, The judge is about to ask Slobodan Milosevic if he has any concerns with the new eight-hour timetable, and he's totally going to go off, uh, which you'll hear uh, his translator, the woman in English. For some reason, he's not addressing the court in English today, but listen. Okay, here we go.
3: No, yes. yes. will also be restricted because that time has been limited to 8.30 when everything closes down so I won't be able to use the public phone box which exists in the corridor either after that time. Let me repeat I make no requests I don't ask for anything but I want it to be known what conditions I have been placed in and if this is a way to abuse and mistreat the accused then I would like to have this understood in this way. Uh, because in the time that I have at my disposal, I'm not able to uh, see to my basic human needs, especially as you intend to have this last endlessly. But a human being does have the need to uh, breathe fresh air, to eat, and to communicate. But as I say, let me repeat, I'm not asking for anything. I just want this to be noted.
2: Is that not amazing or what? Poor Slobo doesn't get enough time to use the telephone. You know, as I stood there listening to him go off about how he's being so abused, all I could remember was how back in 1995 I used to work at this little magazine store and we'd have NPR on all day. So I'd pretty much stand behind the counter and just listen to story after story about how the serbian army was overrunning safe areas and massacring villages and i remember all i wanted to do was find slobodan milosevic and rip his arms off and beat him with them and now 10 years later i'm here at his trial bringing him reading material i've just delivered the books now to the registry and they've promised me that they will give them to him at the beginning of next week, I wrote a little note on the inside of the Platonov book. I wrote, uh, Dear Slobodan Milosevic, I understand that you love literature, so I have brought you these books. I hope you enjoy them. And then I signed my name and wrote my address, which is insane because, like, this guy could have me killed. I mean, what if he thinks I'm mocking him? Oh man, I totally should have not given him the crime and punishment. The third book that I brought Slobodan was Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. You can see how this book could be misconstrued, but Crime and Punishment really was the main reason I went to The Hague. You know the story. Young Raskolnikov kills the miserly old moneylender after deciding she doesn't deserve to live. Then he spends a few hundred pages fighting his conscience, his family, a police detective, and the love of a young street prostitute until finally he breaks down and confesses his crime and is sentenced to prison the book ends with an epilogue in which raskolnikov finally comes to understand his crime and his culpability but it's more than guilt or an acceptance of responsibility it's transformation let me just read you the last two sentences but here begins a new account the account of a man's gradual renewal the account of his gradual regeneration his gradual transition from one world to another his acquaintance with a new hitherto completely unknown reality it might make the subject of a new story but our present story is ended
1: Remedial Theory by Benjamin Walker. By the way, after Benjamin Walker got back to the States, he did receive confirmation that Milosevic got the books. Coming up, one way to keep a relationship fresh by not speaking. You're listening to ReSound, where each week we take the best of what we've been listening to on the web, in other cities, other countries, work that lands in our mailbox, and package it up for you in a one-hour show on Sunday nights. Documentaries, humor, experimental soundscapes, features, narratives, and more—most of which you could never otherwise hear. We also play music. This is the band Turaco Rat and I Sound from their album *Music Is a Hungry Ghost*. Stay with us. For the first year of romance between Tripura and Om, they weren't speaking to each other. It's not that they had a disagreement. You have to be talking for that. Om was practicing silence. He had vowed to himself not to speak, which he had been doing for nearly 20 years. Tripura was practicing silence also, but only for days or weeks at a time. They communicated by chalkboard. Producer Joan Schumann was there when they decided to talk and tell their story in this sound portrait called Silence. One thing before we play it, you might want to turn off any other noise you have in the background, the faucet, the dog barking, whatever. Because even though this piece is completely absorbing, it takes a little extra concentration. But you'll see, it's well worth it.
5: He would sit in the corner and he would read and he was silent and he was, uh, for all intents and purposes, supposedly a monk. And I was so I left him alone here, and he left me alone. He ignored being me. a monk? And... Um, I didn't speak with him year, because year, I figured that's what you do period. with people who are monks is, you know, talk to them, especially if they're choosing to be silent. I lousy at it, really. I went on for a masturbating long time. I'd see him <laughs> every <laughs> evening
2: in the <laughs> famous <foremost> kitchen <laughs> reading
4: in the corner, <laughs> and uh, I ignored him, and he ignored me. So, uh, but at least I didn't antagonize but any actually women. He I mean, ignoring I, all I was pretty good, later, partly because was I was silent.
5: In me that whole time, and also because
4: I just couldn't get involved in something I knew I couldn't. Finish,
5: you know. Um, although there was this very peculiar incident that happened where he—I was in the farmhouse kitchen, so, yeah. I was having a so conversation with another
4: and uh, person, my mind and Om um, interrupted. That woman's trouble. I had absolutely nothing to do with her, which I did not appreciate. Months. That was quite and easy And wrote on Went his board solid.
5: something like, "What would you say if I asked you to marry and me?" And
4: so the first thing I ever remember saying to her. Outside of something that might have been strictly that was
5: literally related, the first thing he ever said to me.
4: Was uh, what would you say if I asked you to marry me? And
5: I thought this guy is, is like, not that only rude outrageous but he's thing nuts. To say. And I told him so. I got really pissed off at
4: him. I wanted to see what would happen. She freaked out. But those
5: were literally the first words, and so I uh, ever. Uh, read from him
4: for three days or so. She would uh, she would just not even get close. And she had I mean her <laughs> eyes got big. I can say life. some pretty outrageous things sometimes. Angry. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, <laughs> I mean, <it's> <laughs> well, that was one, that was a prime example there. So, but that's how it started. He, he gave night.
5: me. A chalkboard. Was that was the first thing uh, that he ever gave was me, was my own chalkboard so that I could do silence. Which I did. That man whose um, name was Byron. One day he is still silent to this day. Week, he week never broke silence. And one so week a year for fourteen years. The same time did, and had I had used his chalkboard. Late seventies. My board was gorgeous. It was walnut. So the meditation uh, I chamber laid in some, back was um, uh, coral very in the back. Quiet. It was one of my prized possessions for a long time. And
4: I had uh, I made a little slate. It, it fits in the palm of so hand. It was maybe like a 3x5 so card uh, or something. So it's
5: 3 inches by 5 inches or something like that. And I had a little piece of chalk. Lovely Italian so slate that, on one um, side, solid wood on the other side. Whatever Sturdy. needed to
4: be said could be and said. And you have a little
5: chalk and chalk holder and a little and so I first did that in 78. Maybe off.
4: one day a week every now and then. It was pretty erratic. And then in uh, 1980... I started doing extended periods. That's the other thing. See, you can say something that's completely matter-of-fact, but the the reader is always going to put their inflection into it.
5: He had this letter. We met on the road one day, and he had this pre-written letter in his pocket. And he handed me this letter. It said that he was on the threshold of taking his monk's vows and that he really wanted to have sex one more time, and he had chosen me to
4: there's do this a, with There's a couple of things that instantly happen as soon as was you start I observing interested? silence. One, the first is you become twice as smart
5: you know do it one more time cuz you think twice before you say anything of kind
4: of thing. that is if you're if you're paying attention you know
5: i i thought and, you're uh, crazy so there's a lot <laughs> of so crazy i'm sorry this doesn't fall into my and you know job description here said, so it, you know, but you know, after that time that, we, we somehow continue to cause be cause
4: a uh, a detachment from the world
5: and so i think after about 9 when, months uh, Or maybe even a little longer. We actually decided we were going to do that—that we were going to have this ceremonial uh, offering. So
4: um, you don't get into that stuff, like if I'd have said blah 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 blah, or I could have said blah 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 blah. So we did. I think we we practiced for a while first. You just don't even
5: for the ceremony. (laughs) And then, then we you had really Not only do you see through what you're beautiful. saying, I mean, but really you also see, it, also see through and what I, uh, everybody else we is saying. This offering thing. We went, had a little ceremonial dunk in the creek that was by the fast. It got very confusing, as a matter of fact. The confusion of sexual energy, attachment, celibacy, yoga, tantra, all that stuff. But this whole time, he is silent. Absolutely. You
4: really see how almost all... Speech is, um, you know, self-motivated. It's usually like uh, how great I am or what I know or what you should be doing,
5: that kind of stuff. And so if
4: you have that focus, the focus is to to watch the self, then you see that stuff.
5: Um, so we started taking trips together. It, it, everything We traveled really well together. The, the and usually when we went so on these trips, we were both silent. With with so silence, one please. week a year, we'd go on a trip somewhere like the Southwest, and we'd take our chalkboards, and we would be silent for the whole week.
4: It, it, everything hinges on the the intent. So that's the way it was with me with doing silence. Now, I don't know, although I'm this kind of person that's... Uh, I'm an extremist. I can do one extreme or the other ex- extreme, but the middle road is really difficult. So, <laughs> <laughs> Omenad, yeah. OM is the cosmic sound. It's the name. It is the sound. It's the whole The the word. Well, that word is all the. And
5: we're sitting on the lawn. It's his birthday. He has told me he's going to give me a birthday present, but hasn't told me what it is. Out of the blue, when I'm not looking at him, I hear the word Actually, lettuce. Actually, the first thing said to her Lettuce. Was lettuce. lettuce, like yeah, that. Was, was and an I don't know where it's coming period. from. It seems like it's coming from the other side of the fence or something. And so I look around. And then I, s- I look at him and he says and the word uh, we we're going to get married and I thought we we'll should you know we ought the to whole talk. thing I I know he exactly what's going on he's going to so on my birthday in eighty three for his birthday and his idea is that if we're going to get married I should hear his voice at least for one day so he's going to talk for one day only and that was the first time I ever talked to him so we had already known each other you know. Uh, and then we
4: talked all that day, and he talked. And the then, man knows uh, how to talk into the night.
5: Although it was difficult for him that day to speak because his face he
4: had had uh,
5: some and the bones and everything,
4: his, his th- voice vibrating from the sound.
5: And it was. Um, and
4: then it was very weird because I would his head I would see something
5: and I, like I look
4: behind was, me or something. It, it was difficult heard. to hear where the sound was coming from. And it sounded like it was coming from behind me or something like that? The
5: physical differences between being with him when he wasn't talking and being with him when um, he was talking were profound. But you, you notice um, what a... Um, we could walk and talk at the same huge time. Huge expenditure energy Which is something of that we never been yes. able to do before. Right. So we could right. walk down the street Stop. and talk like normal people. We went swimming in the ocean, and when we went went to bed that night, he could talk to me in the dark. And I remember trying to keep him up as long as I I could because I enjoyed talking with him. He talked very philosophically, and he had this delightful southern drawl that I'd never heard before, but I had heard about, which explained the lettuce thing. I do remember we went on this trip that was quite significant because we fought a lot on that trip. It's difficult to fight with somebody you know, that's silent. Inhale and and stuff like when that. when we would have fights, yeah. his silence his would his make BS me get louder than I ordinarily would.
4: I used to do that on the phone for no...
5: You know, the more silent he is, the the louder I get. So it wasn't particularly bringing out the best in me either. That
4: click for yes or something. So...
5: I got out of control, and I grabbed his little chalkboard out of his hand and twisted it, and it shattered. And he was terrified. I mean, I don't think anybody had ever um, displayed raw, violent tendencies... (laughs) I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I hadn't done it either. That's why I'm saying it. It just brought out this this other side. So, so yeah, uh, I ripped up his chalkboard in my bare And hand. then sometimes people would be pissed, so the pissed the, if they
4: found out the that shattered. there was nothing wrong with you. And I mean, they'd, they'd be pissed. I
5: scared myself day and day two him, and he was three. I'm not sure. But I remember coming home to our apartment, walking by the window and looking in, and seeing Ohm inside, and he had shaved. The handlebar mustache and the goatee were gone, and I knew that he would be talking, and that was when he broke his silence officially. I doubt in my mind that he will go back into it sometime in another phase of his life.
4: But, yeah, when I get older I, and the uh, the worldly stuff then, is pretty much doesn't matter so much I anymore. Mean,
5: who knows who's And uh, going uh, die first or whatever. Because
4: I am not going to be a babbling old I'm person. I'm going to go
5: silent go again her, he before and, I get uh, to that I'm stage. not going to do that. No,
4: I'll, g- I'll definitely go into silence. I would imagine... Possibly my mid-sixties. Um, I can't imagine it happening. But so I also day. think that he I deserves it, on
5: anything. some level, because he did it give up something anytime. that was it's he adored doing silence that he see. adored.
4: But I anticipate it because it was a great practice. And I loved it. It's great. It, it, it for me, it was a wonderful I and joyous sacrificing practice. Like and like my sense of humor is much greater when I'm silent. You know,
5: maybe you do it get back another at chance a time when then, it uh, can be no, more for yourself and you don't have to share it with another person i have no idea when you first start doing silence in some ways what happens is the inner voices get louder as the outer voice is silenced and so there's the light in the eye there's a smile and then there's this something start getting so loud I, I guess extremely i don't know it's a I of think speculation but that, that, energy that, that utter saving, silence right? that i'm talking well, about that energy has to come in body, when both worlds so you're just, just beaming give up.
4: at these people
5: and maybe that
4: and maybe so that's, uh, really that's louder the ego than limbo, your silence when
5: both worlds
1: finally just shut up silence by joan Schumann. this is resound from the third coast festival I'm Gwen Maxey. We'll be right back with Chicken Diaries and The View from the Couch. Stay with us. a question for you. What is a blunter, and where do you find one? Here's a hint. It's not what you're thinking. Blunters, as they call themselves, are teenagers armed with tape recorders, microphones, and their very own program. It's called Blunt Radio, and it airs on WMPG, a community radio station in Portland, Maine. Tonight, we're going to play an essay for you by Kathleen Ross, who was 16 when she wrote and produced this piece. It's called And How Does That Make You Feel? It's not exactly fact, and it's not exactly fiction. And I can tell you, it's not exactly easy to pull something like that off and do it well. We think she did. Just one more word about this piece, it doesn't beat around the bush. It takes on some serious subjects. After all, it's not called blunt for nothing.
6: It's 5.15. They're 15 minutes early. Stella sinks into a chair and crosses her arms. Avoiding any of the questioning stares of the occupants of the waiting room, Stella paused through her purse. She imagines what the others assume her reason for being there might be. Bipolar psycho, weed fiend, little Lolita, child of divorced parents, obsessive compulsive. What do they know, sneers Stella. Stella's mother, dressed in a crisp yellow sundress, smiles widely at the receptionist when it is her turn. In a light falsetto, Stella's mother tells the receptionist, I have an appointment for Stella. She seems too proud of it, Stella thinks. Hidden, muffled speakers play soft and easy listening music. It carries and dances around the waiting room, falling lightly into people's ears. Leaning back in the chair, Stella decides that one could easily drift off into sleep in this chair. She closes her eyes. She dreams that she has missed the appointment during her nap. The waiting room Straighten is the blanket. The fluff the throw pillows so on the so couch. Open the window so the light will filter in and the street below can the be seen. Add a new box of tissues. Red, Turn the phone ring to low. Open a fresh page in the notebook. The 5.30, time for the next appointment. The therapist smooths her linen blouse children. and adjusts we'll her horn-rimmed care. glasses as she exits the, the office. She is sprawled on the peach tiles in the bathroom. Take another pill, a voice in her head whispers. One more pill will make the pain go away, a voice in her head tells her. The painkiller's bottle lays two-thirds empty in front of her, next to the half-empty bottle of vodka. Pill, swig, pill, swig. The voice instructs her. She keeps pilling and swigging, pilling and swigging until the bottles become blurry and then black. The therapist's voice is gentle, almost sedated in its tone.
7: Hello there, I'm Stella's mother. You came highly recommended from many different sources. Stella has just been feeling a little blue lately, haven't you Stella? I'm sure you'll be able to help her out.
6: First thing is first, I would like to meet her. Stella rises from her chair, sullenly, and shakes the therapist's hand. Would you like to come into my office Stella? National Geographic, Time, Woman's World. Newsweek, Martha Stewart Living, Cosmopolitan, Allure, U.S. Weekly, Sports Illustrated. Stella's mother flips through the magazines in the waiting room. Tapping her manicured nails on the armrest, she becomes impatient. She checks her watch. It's 5.30 and the therapist isn't out of her office yet. She knew that this therapist might not be right for her, Stella. It was a gamble coming here because she had only heard a tiny bit about this therapist, but knew that she prescribed antidepressants, which was probably all that Stella needed. The therapist's voice is gentle, almost sedated in its tone.
7: Hello there, I'm Stella's mother. You came highly recommended from many different sources. Stella has just been feeling a little blue lately, haven't you Stella? I'm sure you'll be able to help her out. First thing is first, I would
6: like to meet her. They look around. Stella isn't in the waiting room. The heavy exit door shuts behind her as she runs down the staircase. Each cement step tires her out more and more until she reaches the street level. Running to the nearest curb, she flags down a cab. Take me anywhere, she tells the cabbie. The couch. Stella feels like she can't even begin, even though the therapist waits with a warm, welcoming expression. How can she put into words feelings that have been swirling inside of her for almost a year now? She doesn't want to be here. Beginning to cry, Stella places her head in her hands. The therapist hands her a box of tissues. How does that make you feel? Uh Uh-huh. How was that? Hmm, I see. Did this change you in any way? Interesting. Let's talk about your childhood. Yes, yes. Did this make you nervous and or scared? Mm Mm-hmm. Why do you think you made that decision? Ah, I see. Let's talk about your social life. How does that make you feel? The therapist's voice is gentle, almost sedated in its tone.
7: Hello there, I'm Stella's mother. You came highly recommended from many different sources. Stella has just been feeling a little blue lately, haven't you Stella? I'm sure you'll be able to help her out. First thing is first,
6: I would like to meet
7: her. Well, that doesn't seem very important to me. Isn't it time we begin the session? I'm sure I can tell you what is going on in Stella's head. She marches into
6: the office and the therapist follows her, leaving Stella in the waiting room. Stella is sobbing. I don't want to do anything anymore. I'm so afraid that I'm going to fail or mess up somehow. I can't even do the things that I used to do without having a complete nervous breakdown. And I always need people around me. I can't be alone. I can't without feeling so empty. How can I live my life when I'm constantly doubting myself and putting myself down? I just want to be able to feel like the old Stella again. I've lost her because I've been so sad and I've just hated myself for the past year. She breaks off and continues to cry her pen hovering above her notebook, the therapist says, Mm Mm-hmm. And how does that make you feel? First, I would like to get to know you a little more, Stella. Looking at colleges yet? A little. Stella's mother, peeking through the crack in the door, has been
7: watching the beginning of a therapist appointment and says, We visited Vassar, Columbia, Sarah Lawrence, Bard, and a few more. She opens the door and comes into the room,
6: sitting on the couch next to Stella.
7: Ooh, this is comfy. Now where was I?
6: Sports, school, after-school activities, phone, chores, college trips, homework, jobs, community service, friends, dancers, family, movies, self more, more friends, drama, dance, boyfriends, television, gossip, parties, internet, movies, holidays, drama, college applications, more school, who has time to be sane, Stella thing? more school. Stella's mother is absorbed in a magazine. Suicide. Throw yourself in front of a train. Pop pills. Leave the car running in the garage. Starve. Cool pistol to a hot forehead. Drink. Drown in river. Hang. Crash the car. Fire. Swallow poison.
7: Overdose. Jump off the balcony. Suicide. See, I was the middle child in the family and my mother always put a lot of pressure on me to be perfect. So I think that's why I'm struggling to grasp my own potential. Stella's
6: mother explains, dabbing her eyes with a tissue. The therapist nods. Mm Mm-hmm. And how does that make you feel? Sitting next to her mother on the couch, Stella is frustrated. I thought this was supposed to be my appointment. Her mother snaps her head and glares at Stella. She can't sleep. The night beckons to her and begs her to stay up and enjoy each twilight hour. And when she does attempt to leave the night, the nightmares haunt her dreams. Dreams of death and pain keep her up with the night. An hour of sleep in the morning is all you need, the voice tells her. Stay up with us, she hears. The night is calm if she is awake, but is rough if she tries to dream. She can't sleep. Her body doesn't allow her to sleep.
7: See, she is the middle child in the family, and there's a lot of pressure on her to be perfect, so I think that's why she's struggling to grasp her own potential. Stella's mother explains, dabbing
6: Stella's eye with a tissue. The therapist nod. I can't do this anymore, Stella declares. Stella jumps up from the couch and dives out the open window, plummeting to the street below. Hitting the pavement, she gets up and runs to the nearest curb, flagging down a cab. Take me anywhere, she says to the cabbie. How does that make you feel? Uh Uh-huh. How was that? Hmm, I see. Did this change you in any way? Interesting. Let's talk about your childhood. Yes, yes. Did this make you nervous and or scared? Mm Mm-hmm. Why do you think you made that decision? Ah, I see. Let's talk about your social life. How does that make you feel? The bathroom floor was peach, and her blood was red. A modern artist's interpretation of a teenager's strife drop of red, speckles of red, puddles of red. They found her painting of peach and red and called the ambulance, unable to understand the true craftsmanship behind it. Only a faint scar now remains, but when she is sad, she grabs her wrist and can still sense the broken veins, feeling resentful. Happiness is a warm gun. Happiness is a bowl of cherries. Happiness comes from a few of my favorite things. Happiness is kittens and puppies. Happiness is friendship. Happiness is little things in life. Happiness is being in love. Happiness isn't a little pill, Stella thinks. I'll never be top of the class. I'll never get into college. I'll never move out of my hometown. I'll never have a boyfriend. I'll never please my parents. I'll never be homecoming queen. I'll never excel in sports. I'll never be able to lose weight. I'll never be original. I'll never look like that model in the magazine. I'll never amount to anything. I'll never let myself be a failure. She stops pacing back and forth on the peach tiles. I'll never let myself go on living like this, she says. She pulls a trigger. I think this was a good session. I do too. It felt good to talk to someone who wasn't connected to my life, Stella admits. Well, let's bring in your mother now. Her mother enters, folding a magazine and tucking it under her arm. So when would you like to make the next appointment for Stella? Same time next week? Now let's all hold hands and forget all the bad things that have passed between one another. This is an exercise that I only perform with patients. I think that have really reached this point in their life. Now remember, be free, be floating. Stella, her mother, and her therapist hold hands and jump out of the window together, landing in a crooked mess on the pavement. I think this was a good session. I do too. It felt good to talk to someone who wasn't connected to my life, Stella admits. Well, let's bring in your mother now. Her mother enters, folding a magazine and tucking it under her arm. So when would you like to make the next appointment for yourself? For me? Stella rises and places her hand on her mother's shoulder. Yes, we decided that it's you that should have the therapy, not me. Stella nestles into the white jacket wrapped around her. The tall men close the door to the van and drive off. Her mother and the therapist watch as the van disappears around the corner.
7: Oh well, at least I can visit on the
6: weekends. It's 6.30 and the appointment got over just in time. Stella's mother is pleased because she will be able to make it home in time to get the chicken in the oven. Stella is quiet as they walk out to the car. Stella's mother asks, Do you mind going to therapy, sweetie? It's fine, Stella grumbles, rolling her eyes and shuffling her feet. Yes, but
7: how does it make you feel?
6: I don't How does want to that to you anything Uh-huh. I'm so How is that? That I'm going to mm, mess does, up, does this sorry. change you in any way? I can't even do the things that I used to do Let's without Talk about your child. Yes, arms Yes, on Did I make always have this end or can't feel gossip. Gossip. Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't without do you think you made that decision? How does it make Let's talk about your social life. How does that feel? I just want to be able to feel like the old Stella again. How does that make me feel? A story by Kathleen
0: Ross. Is something wrong with me.
1: A story by Kathleen Ross from Blunt Radio in Portland, Maine. So is there anyone around who can watch a fluffy little chick waddling around without a good hearty? Oh, maybe a few people, but apparently Jude Fletcher isn't one of them. In 2003, she produced the next story for a show on KQED in San Francisco called Hot Soup, a now defunct show. Here is Chicken Diaries by Jude Fletcher.
8: Reading about raising chickens and actually raising them are two different things. In my case, it wasn't what the books predicted. Most publications are focused on poultry and egg production. While eggs were the main reason for getting our chickens, raising poultry definitely was not. When I brought these little peepers home just days old, chicken cordon bleu did not immediately spring to mind. What did happen is these tiny chicks brought out whatever bit of maternal instinct I had. A surprise for me, since I thought I had very little. Especially toward chicken. (music) Exhibit A. Betty. Like the legend of Lana Turner... There she was in a fuzzy sweater, not in front of, but in, a feed store in San Pablo, California. Once a rural outpost, but now very much a part of the hood. Betty cost $2, but you couldn't call her cheap. She was a hot chick, a New Hampshire Red, and bringing home Betty was a spur-of-the-moment decision made by my partner Dave, who had wanted them ever since he read about raising chickens in Organic Gardening magazine. Betty arrived with her pal Veronica, and we placed them in a little box with a lamp over them to keep them warm. Betty was the tinier of the two, and just a couple of days old, and always trying to squeeze underneath Veronica for warmth. Of course, I had to pick them up and keep them in my lap, as I couldn't take their vulnerable little cries for comfort. This was done on a washable rag, because you can't exactly box-train a chicken. I kept one on each shoulder while doing the dishes. They'd snuggle under Dave's chin while he took naps and sometimes sat on our laps while we watched TV. (laughs) At about four weeks, it was time to get the chicks used to the great outdoors. We'd take them out for supervised pen time so they could sample the fruits of the yard. Beetles, grass, worms, and grubs. I'd put the lounge chair in the pen, strategically situated for good sun. They'd take dust baths and preen, I'd adjust my straps to avoid tan lines. We'd hang the laundry together, maybe share a bowl of Special K. Finally, it was food that sealed Betty's banishment from the house. Cooking dinner one night with two cats and two dogs underfoot, Betty pecked the dogs in the nose. She wanted a piece of the action, and I had to hold the dogs back from trying to get a piece of her. Chicken is the dog's favorite dish. Dave said no more. Betty's too big and too sassy to be in the house. He took the pen to the basement. From My Chicken Diary August 4, 2002 Betty has grown into a lovely girl. She's tall, sort of strawberry blonde, with beautiful gold eyes, a large coral comb and wattles and dark green iridescent tail feathers. It's like when you see your teenager come down the stairs in that fancy prom dress, and she's now more like a princess instead of a gawky girl in jeans. Betty clucked today instead of peeping, and I got a little choked up. It won't be long now till she's laying eggs. August 9th. 2002. I've got a nagging suspicion that Betty's almost too pretty. Veronica's comb is nowhere near as big. I called the guy at the feed store who had told us the chickens were guaranteed hens, and then he backtracked. Said that's what the company he bought them from told him. Said it's very hard to sex chicks. Said there's a book on a website for $14.99 that will tell you all the secrets of how to do it. Well, it wasn't long before Betty's voice began to crack and sounded like she was trying to crow. She started acting differently toward Veronica and trying to jump on her back. Then, one morning, we woke up to the sound of crowing coming up from the basement. Betty was a rooster, a big, strapping, gorgeous rooster. Now, we wake up every morning to the sound of crowing coming up from the basement, around 6 a.m., continuing till after 8 when we let him out. The neighbors think he's very polite, that he doesn't crow until late. Even though I was a victim in the poultry version of the crying game, I'm crazy about him. He's the handsomest bird I've ever seen. He still sits on my lap and follows me around the yard, but he's a scrappy guy. Dave says too scrappy. He's bitten him a couple of times. So what? It heals. And Veronica gives us delicious fresh eggs. Five a week. Guess it's time to change Betty's name. Dave wants to call him Tyson, just to keep him in line.
2: I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken. I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken.
1: Chicken Diaries, produced by Jude Fletcher. Well, Veronica and Betty, or Tyson, or whatever his name is, would feel right at home here.
2: Cows out in the pasture lie and calmly chew their cud. Sheep may safely graze in fields and pigs will play in mud. Axe and toil with my yoke and horses we can ride. These animals feed and clothe us
1: and they help us at our side. Was it a church or the backstage of Dr. Doolittle? Really, it was hard to tell. In 1996, St. Mary's Basilica in Minneapolis was jammed with cats, dogs, fish, ferrets, frogs, hedgehogs, mice, hamsters, and turtles to name but a few of the day's congregates. It was the annual blessing of the pets and it is a sight to see, and hear, and, one can only imagine, clean up after. Following the indoor service and singing, pets and owners paraded out of the church to the neighboring park, where clergy of all denominations were poised, ready to bless. In front of every minister, a line. Let's listen in.
3: This is Zeus. Zeus.
8: This is Dover. Dover. And Booty. And Booty, booty. okay. Okay. Zero. okay. Zero. Katie.
6: Uh, Katie, This is Katie, and she's got bad knees, so oh, okay. if we could... Well, Skippy, right. we
1: bless you in the name of God, Creator, Sanctifier, and Redeemer. We ask God to give you an abundant, full life, rich with love. Amen.
3: Hazel, Sit. I bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Asking the Trinity to give you long life, health, and happiness. Amen.
5: We brought a proxy dog for Fred because Fred is on oh, yeah. his very last legs and he couldn't oh.
6: make it to the. Hi, source. this is Thomas Hello, Aquinas. Thomas. Thomas.
4: Oh. Wow. <laughs> Thomas, through the intercession of Saint Francis, may you know God's love, and care and protection always, and through the intercession of Saint Thomas Aquinas too, I guess.
1: Why not? There <laughs> oh, I am. Him. for tonight's show. Resound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is produced by myself, Gwen Maxi, and Katia Dunn, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Thanks to Eric Rudd for engineering tonight's show. You can hear today's program at chicagopublicradio.org resound. And while you're at it, you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world at thirdcoastfestival.org. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Drehouse Foundation, the Sarah Lee Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at chicagopublicradio.org. ReSound returns next Sunday at 5 with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. Good night.